0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Banana Bag Podcast. I'm so excited for today's episode because I'm speaking with Katie Vernoy. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist with a master's degree in clinical psychology and a bachelor's degree in psychology and theater. Katie is also the co-founder and co-host for the Therapy Reimagined Conference, and she has her own podcast, Modern Therapist Survival Guide. During the episode, Katie and I talk a lot about the stresses of being a healthcare worker, We talk a lot about how healthcare workers can take care of themselves because they have to take care of themselves in order to be able to take care of others. Katie even gives some awesome examples of ways that healthcare professionals can help themselves even during their shifts at work. I'm really excited to bring you guys this episode and I think it's going to be a great resource. Katie has such an awesome perspective on things and I'm really excited for you guys to hear what she says. Don't forget to follow us on social media at the Banana Bag Podcast or visit our website for more information, including ways to support us, thebananabagpodcast.com. Also, if you're interested, one of the best ways to support our podcast is to share it with your friends. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope you enjoy the episode. Hi Katie, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Laura. I'm excited to talk with you. I'm excited too. So um, I talked about a little bit about your background in the introduction, but can you kind of give a quick summary of your current position and roles in the therapy psychology world? Sure.
1: Yeah, I'm first and foremost, I'm a therapist. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist out in Torrance, California, so in the South Bay of Los Angeles i also am a consultant for helping professionals as well as other high pressure highly trusted uh, professionals who are looking to create sustainable careers and finally i have a podcast called the modern therapist survival guide as well as a conference that is called therapy reimagined where i work with helping professionals provide primarily therapists to kind of shift how we operate as professionals for what is true now while also taking care of ourselves, which I think is a big mm. thing that's missing for my profession, and I know for yours as well. So I'm excited to talk about that stuff with you today.
0: Yes, exactly. I I don't know if you know this, but I actually saw part of the Therapy Reimagined conference, and I felt like, even though it was geared mostly towards therapists, that it was so like even applicable to my job. So that was a nice. that was great this year.
1: Thank you. That's awesome.
0: That's a awesome resume, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I thought that your experience would kind of be relevant to the topic that I wanted to talk about today. Kind of burnout, just like loosely burnout, um, but specifically burnout in the healthcare field. Um, I think that the hospital healthcare community can learn a lot from the therapist psychology world. Um, My husband works with therapists actually, and I've seen such an unending amount of resources, consultations, courses, and just like a a community of support and that the burnout is in the therapist world even is so like humbly acknowledged and just put out there with no embarrassment. And I don't know what resources are actually out there for nurses or respiratory therapists, but and I've only been a nurse for a few years, but from what I've seen, there isn't as much as what's in the therapy world.
1: Yeah. And I think that is true. And there is still, whether it's kind of wearing burnout as a badge of honor, look at how hard I'm working, or if it's still that kind of, I need to hide this because it mm-hmm. seems like everybody else is getting by and I'm here for the work. I don't, you know, like I shouldn't pay attention to myself. Like, mm-hmm. I think there's still a ways to go in the the, the therapist profession, the psychotherapist profession,
0: but hearing that it's worse for nurses and respiratory therapists makes me very, very sad. I know. I definitely think that there needs to be some awareness and some more resources for that. I I was just actually listening to one of your podcast episodes this morning with Kurt about how burnout might be like a noble subsection of depression, how we kind of <laughs> made it more that kind of thing so yeah that was a really interesting episode I thought that was great <laughs> well we actually
1: took that from an article that was specific to the medical profession that was basically saying that doctors are depressed or medical professionals are profet- pr- depressed and they're calling it burnout just so that they feel better about it like they're not <laughs> yeah <laughs> they're not allowed to be depressed uh, so they call it burnout and somehow it's okay and and that's just not okay to me.
0: And I think one of the biggest negatives to not associating associating it with depression is the fact that there's so much research on depression but no research on burnout really. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. And I think that there is there's both a judgment around burnout and there's also a lack of understanding of how to to treat it both.
0: So it's it's mm-hmm.
1: It's not a good thing to have and it's hard to treat it.
0: From all the research that I've done on it, a lot of people have said, yes, it's there, but no one said, oh, this is how you measure it or this is how you solve it. Mostly the research just says, yeah, it exists. Mm -hmm. Yep. (laughs) So I wanted to talk about a specific phrase that you coined sacrificial helping syndrome. (laughs) Can you kind of define what that is? Sure. So I recognized, and, and
1: some of it is a, pleasant way of saying martyr. Mm. But when we sacrifice ourselves for the people that we serve, and this could be in my case, my therapy clients, it could be the people I consult with. If if I'm sacrificing for them, or if you're sacrificing as a nurse, you're sacrificing for your patients or for the team, it can feel very powerful, like you're doing something important.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: However, it often leads you down the path to vicarious trauma, compassion fatigue, as well as burnout, and potentially even, you know, kind of the newest thing people have been talking about is moral injury. But it's this thing where we feel noble sacrificing ourselves. And I think there are even cultural or spiritual reasons that people look for self sacrifice Mm -hmm. as something that's valuable. But it's, goes beyond, when it, when I'm talking about sacrificial helping, it's kind of not thoughtful and it also goes beyond what someone's capacity to sacrifice or help is. Mm-hmm. And so this is when people may promise that they're going to do something or be somewhere and then not be able to deliver, that they are constantly taking overtime shifts or working with the most challenging clients or patients. And then all of a sudden they are out on medical leave because they've run their body into the ground and they can no longer help. And this is where people not just burn out, like they hate their job and they're so negative all the time and that kind of stuff, but they could actually physically just burn their bodies out. And so Mm -hmm. to me, it kind of has this flavor of I'm here for these altruistic reasons and I don't matter. Only the people I help matter. And what ends up happening is having a very overtaxed workforce that cannot take care of themselves and then are not able to take care of
0: other other people. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the problems is even when you reach that threshold of what you can handle, if you're still going, people are complimenting you like, wow, look at how awesome she is taking extra time to help her or look at how awesome she is picking up extra shifts, even though you're at the point where you can't handle it, people are still complimenting yeah. you. So you feel like you're doing the right thing. Oh,
1: sure. And and sometimes there's even I mean, sometimes there's financial reward, but sometimes it is the prestige like, oh, well, mm-hmm. this person has sacrificed themselves and took on all the extra stuff. And they're just always willing to jump in. And so let's promote them. And so then it creates a culture of everyone working too much, giving of themselves and not really considering their own needs. And when it's from a place of I'm giving as much as I want, and it's a lot, but I'm giving as much as I want and I have the resources to do so, that can be very positive. We're all bought in. We're all doing the things and then we're working together. And then there's also times when it's just, I'm assuming for especially for medical professionals, but I know that uh, psychotherapists and other mental health professionals are, are in this right now where right now we need to give extra because there's a crisis, right? Mm-hmm. And so those things are, are fairly normal. They're not a problem. But when there's this culture of, especially if there's tight budgets or, or small margins where the the systems are relying on us giving more than we have. And the culture is one that we have to, that we support people who overwork and don't take care of themselves. Then it creates this toxic work environment that burns, burns through people. And then they go and they do something else. I always joke that like, yeah, you know, I was a therapist and now I'm, you know, a barista at Starbucks like not that i hate star i love starbucks i love baristas but like mm-hmm. we have been trained to do this thing that really helps people and a lot of people go to the point where they just can't do it anymore at all different levels because the culture supports it
0: i think it's interesting what you said about systems not supporting it because i was reading an article you wrote from sip for simple practice and one of the headlines was It just caught my eye right away. Society expects our help, but doesn't always value it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that also plays into it because, I mean, with with the virus in the beginning, with the first wave, people were clapping every night. They were showing their support for healthcare Mm -hmm. workers. But now, right now, as we're recording this, we're kind of in our second wave. And I know a lot of my friends, even things that they post on Facebook, like, we're still here. It's worse than ever and yeah. it's bad. And they aren't even getting the same support that they had at the beginning of the virus. So I think that the current norm of what's happening, just with what's going on, it's not sustainable. Like you said, and people are going to leave the profession.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, and the thing is, is that like, I, I, you know, that just hit my heart that there's, I I think about the wave and if, whether it's the second wave or the third wave, like I'm reading in the, in the newspaper that there's like 120,000 new cases in the United States. Like Mm
0: -hmm.
1: there's a need, like this is way higher than it was in the first wave. And the resources are, are exhausted. And I think that's the thing that can happen when you're working in a, a high-pressure, highly trusted environment is that your clients or patients are relying on you to take care of them in whatever mm-hmm. way that you do. But for nurses, that's going to be in their medical care in whatever specialty that you're in. And <laughs> they're going to rely on that in a way that's oftentimes because of the high pressure nature of it, that's kind of like a crisis. So it's it's most present, I think, when we talk about like the beginning of therapy or somebody running into an, an emergency room, right? Like they need help and they need it now and it's a crisis.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And in our professions, we learn how to actually negotiate that a little bit. My crisis isn't your crisis. Your crisis isn't mine. Let's Mm -hmm. actually like go through the protocol. Like what level of crisis is this? Okay, sit down. I'll get to you when it's your turn. But there's such urgency on these needs. And then on the the budgeting side and the management side, there's such urgency to make sure that the money is there. And so I feel like, and, and maybe you can tell me if this is the same case for nurses, that there's this constant crisis mentality even when there's not mm-hmm. of we have to do it now we have to do it all all perfectly we have to kind of keep moving forward and there's so much and do it do it two seconds from now not three minutes from now like it's it's something where that urgency is constant even when there's not life and death
0: Yes exactly I think you're spot on and the problem is it as what I found working in the ER is it's hard to tell a patient like you're not the priority. Like that never leads to a good result. So they kind of expect you to treat them like an emergency because to them it's a, they're subjectively having an emergency, even though from our side, they're having not, their case isn't as serious. (laughs) 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 I had to clarify that. It is,
1: yes, it's it's urgent, not emergent, right? Like, yes, Mm -hmm. we need to take care of you today. But we don't need to take care of you right in this moment. And I think the difficulty, and this is something that this is a nuance that I am starting to uncover for myself right now. So this is maybe let me know if this makes sense. But if I tell a client, you're not urgent because you're not actively suicidal right now and I have someone else who is, that almost feels like, okay, I can deal with this a little bit like, okay, I've got this, you know, you've got someone else that's more at risk than I am right? Mm -hmm. Having a harder time, you know, you could say, well, hey, I know you have a head wound. We've staunched the bleeding. There's someone that's having an active cardiac incident, right? Like, okay, they can kind of get Mm -hmm. it.
0: And I found, yes, there are the people that understand, oh, if this person is sicker than me, you should see that person first. But from what I've I've seen, if you tell someone, I can't see you right now because you're not actively suicidal, they just start Becoming suicidal, from that's what I've seen in the ER, whether or not they were originally. So I just think it's hard when you're having a subjective emergency yourself Mm. to be able to understand, especially with patient privacy laws. I mean, you can't tell them that much about someone else's situation. So yeah, it's difficult. <laughs> well, and I think even more so, it's difficult to say, like people
1: I'm sure glare at you if you're on break, right? Like
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> I'm sitting out here in the waiting room. Why are you on break?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and I think that's the part I think that needs the most support because I think there are probably, you know, different kind of triage protocols that help that people don't like, but they're going to comply with. But if you say your emergency isn't life threatening in this moment. And I have something I need to do for myself to be able to serve you later, is never going to be easy for someone Mm-mm. in crisis to hear.
0: Mm-mm.
1: And it's, it's the same thing as like, put your own oxygen mask on first or some of the other things that it's like, hey, you have to, you have to go to the bathroom, you have to eat food, you have to get sleep. Like Those are non-negotiables. But trying to argue that those, even those basic needs of survival, are more important than you, who's in crisis right now, is super hard on a one-to-one level. If the the breaks and and not the like, oh, you need to have a break every couple of hours or whatever it is, but the breaks with like, I am starving or I just witnessed something and I'm having an emotional reaction. Like if those types of breaks aren't supported or promoted, then you've got health professionals who are forcefully sacrificing themselves and ending up worse off because it's hard to explain why a helper needs to take a break.
0: I think you have it spot on there. Um, I think this all leads to the big question of who is responsible for improving this situation that we're talking about. And I think right now a lot of the responsibility is placed on the healthcare individual from what i've seen i've been there for a couple of years now and the only support that i got related to burnout was during orientation they said if you are feeling tired or like sick of work it's because you are not taking care of your body you're not sleeping enough you're not exercising enough you're not eating right and that's all i heard so i think that it's important for not only the hospital, but also the community to also understand that if they want someone to be there during their moments of crisis, that when they're not in crisis, they need to support that person. And I don't know how that support comes about, whether financially or just awareness or I don't know, but Yeah, I think it takes more than one person to solve this issue. Well, even when you said
1: that the only discussion around burnout was that you had not done enough to care for yourself, I just was ready to throw something. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. I mean, come on. I think it's something where (sighs) I get that there is a certain responsibility each of us has for our own Mm self-care. You know, there's... There's potentially strategies you can do when you're on night shift. It's super hard and people are going to be exhausted because it's really hard to sleep during the day, but whatever, right? Like there are things that you can do to optimize your self-care in the structure mm-hmm. that you're in, you know, getting your rest, getting your, getting your vitamins, making sure you're drinking enough water, making sure you're eating food, going to the bathroom and not waiting extra hours because you're in the middle of something like, of course, you know that better than I am. You're a medical professional. <laughs> um, <laughs> Mental health wise, I mean, they're certainly making sure that you do take mental breaks and and that you are able to take care of yourself after potentially traumatizing events at work, and that's hard if there's no structure for it. But certainly, being able to advocate for yourself, saying "I I just witnessed a patient die, and I need to I need to take 15 minutes in." In the chapel and and sit and and compose myself. You know I can't immediately go to the next patient. Um, but if that's not possible, like if you don't have that an understanding team or an understanding infrastructure that says sure you can take breaks as you need, because I, I can't imagine. And, and maybe this is me just being you know s- s- struck by stereotypes, but I think. I don't imagine that there's a whole bunch of nurses that are like, I want to see how much I can get away with. I'm going to work as little as possible and and try to serve as few patients as possible. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think that that's the case. I assume, like therapists, that most helping professionals, including nurses, are like, I am going to be on the spot. I'm going to do what I need to do. And I'm going to do it as well as I can. And I'm going to help as many patients as I can. Mm Mm-hmm. And so saying take a break when you need is not like, oh, you're gonna have a whole bunch of slackers. No, that's that's just negative and we need to stop that thinking.
0: Yeah, I think there has to be more trust for and autonomy for the nurses mm-hmm. to know what they need when they need it. I think even the thing about I mean, obviously you can't just take your break whenever you need it in the hospital, but I think just having more flexibility and choosing the time of your break because I remember that. So at one of the hospitals that I worked at, we would get two 15 minutes and a 30-minute break for lunch. So just the fact that I usually got those breaks was awesome. Like they did a good job getting everybody their break. But the problem was, sometimes I would take my first 15-minute break 15 minutes after I got to work. Oh Like right after I took report. (laughs) So then I'm at 11 hours and 30 minutes with two breaks and I had a 15-minute break right away. Mm -hmm. So I think just having more... Even that small thing you mentioned about having more flexibility on when to take a break. And obviously, it's harder in critical care areas. Sure. That would be helpful. Well,
1: I think some of it becomes staffing, right? So that you have enough staffing that unless there are a million fires being, you know, like a million things on fire, like you should be able to have like, hey, I need a moment and mm-hmm. be able to take even 15 minutes, right? Like it seems like being so tight on staffing that you can't walk off the floor for 15 minutes to me is is a problem. I get that there's budgets and I don't understand those budgets, so I'm not going to judge, but I'm saying that that being able to have infrastructure in place so that people can take care of themselves in the moment. Mm-hmm. Knowing that they probably won't (laughs) most of the time because they're busy working with patients and doing what they need to do, but like having that flexibility is important. But I think there's also requirements that could be very helpful. I think a lot of people won't do it, but a requirement that if there is a traumatic situation, If there is time, having some sort of a debriefing with the team that witnessed it, you know, whether it's a a death or or something that was very traumatic to the team, like we process it, even if it's 15 minutes of how are you doing? What did what's going on? Okay, let's let's you know, let's take our moment, have a little bit of a ritual and on Mm -hmm. to the next. I think having having some sort of closing out time at the end of the day, I mean, I don't know how many people end up being on the same shift, but having times to come in and process with your coworkers what you experienced for the day, what went well, what was a challenge, being able to have some closure to the day so that you can go home and not be continuing to process
0: so much on your own. I mean, there's... And I think, I think there has to be some accountability to to make sure that happens every time. Because I know for me, I know with my adrenaline when I'm at work, I don't really always comprehend what I'm seeing or what I'm experiencing. And then usually it would hit me on the drive home. And I would be like, what just happened that last 12 hours? So Mm -hmm. I think it's important to make sure that the leaders in the team make sure that that happens because sometimes you don't always understand what's happening in Mm -hmm. the moment. Yes, exactly. And I think
1: it's, it's the managing a lot of it on your own Mm -hmm. and then not feeling comfortable because, okay, now it's four days later. I didn't manage that, that the traumatic experience that I witnessed four days ago, I haven't managed that. I didn't realize till I drove home that I had it. And then the next day there was something that was not as bad, but still I'm very sensitive. I'm overwhelmed. And then now day three, there's something else or I, you know, there was a conflict with a coworker because of how we decided to handle something. And then day four, I have nothing left to give. And now I recognize I'm burnt out. I'm exhausted. I'm feeling really emotional and there's no, it's not acceptable to say, "Hey, I'm just really struggling right now," but I think it's it's something where all of that's well and good as if it's supported, and, and clinicians or or, or um, nurses or other health professionals know what they need to do. But when you're beyond that point, when you're exhausted and you're emotionally exhausted. You know, whether it's you're hangry or you're super traumatized or you're at that place where you feel like your head's going to explode or like anything, anybody says something wrong to you and you're going to just start crying or you've completely shut down and you have no emotions, whatever, and you forgot what it feels like to feel something. (laughs) Whenever you're in, in one of those spots, you're not going to be like, oh yeah, like I'm not doing well, so I'm going to go take a mental health day or I'm going to go and process the trauma I just experienced so that I don't have ongoing vicarious trauma and PTSD. Like, No. You're not gonna take, you're not gonna do that. You're not gonna, yeah. <laughs> you're not gonna be able to say like, yes, this is what I need. It's like trying to tell a three-year-old to like take care of themselves, you know, like, no, they're like, I wanna go. <laughs> I wanna stay at Disneyland and I can't, and I never wanna sleep again and you can't make me eat any
0: food. Like, no, we're beyond the point, right? And at that point, you get to the point where if a patient looks at you weird, you're going to react because <laughs> that was just oh, sure. the last thing to push you over the edge. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I also I think that contributes to the tension, and I think just taking care of it in the moment. Well, whether it's in the moment, because because I'm not a
1: crisis specialist. I, I think that there are folks who would say, hey, don't process things immediately because you're more likely to get PTSD. So I think it's actually mm. doing some research to find out what the right support is. But I think being able to, if, it, if in the moment, it's just checking in and recognizing you're not alone with whatever just happened. And then providing opportunities for people to process when they need and to get mental health care when they need. Because I think uh, I've been reading articles that a lot of medical providers are not feeling comfortable actually seeking mental health care because of of what it might do, the stigma surrounding it. Mm -hmm. And so being able to to get the mental health care at the time that's needed as well as having chances to process and kind of come together so you don't feel so isolated with it, that it's, you know, that you're not just, Hey, we're, we're a team that, that the world at different points, you know, puts us as superheroes and other points puts us as uh, required service people that need to just take care of them, but whatever, like we're a team, we're in this together, but it's also like as humans, we're in this together and we can support each other. And it's not about what we're doing for the world or for this patient. It's what
0: we're doing for ourselves and our, and with for each other. And ultimately doing ourselves ends up doing it for the patient because we'll Oh, be absolutely. Off. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, I mean, I think it even is, it even comes down to recognizing that, that when medical professionals are exhausted and burned out and even, even later in the day, I mean, t- timing plays an effort. Like, like, Surgeries are more likely to be successful in the morning than the afternoon. And that's just kind of general day to day. I mean, mm-hmm. there's actual fiscal costs for
0: having healthcare professionals that are running at, at suboptimal levels. Did you I just read an article on that? It's over nine billion a year. Yeah, all medical professions.
1: Yeah. So so there is a fiscal reason if if the the push the paper pushers, the pencil pushers want a reason to take care of the medical professionals. It's you're going to have a lot less liability and a lot less being sued and patients are going to get much better care. But like even just in a single day. Under normal circumstances, when people are functioning fairly optimally when they're tired in the afternoon or less adept at the afternoon, they're going to make but make worse choices and, and find fewer things and, and, you know, prevent, present uh, less optimal, you know, cures, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So when you've got people that are just running and running and running without taking care of themselves and really getting to a place of burnout, compassion to fatigue, vicarious trauma, Huge physical 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 exhaustion. The medical care has to go down, mm-hmm. not on purpose, but because we just are human beings and we can only do what we
0: can do. There's a lot of research out there that feelings of those things that you were talking about leads to medical errors. Obviously, that makes sense. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so it's not only fiscal, but also community health. Like oh, absolutely, the, of the community. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I know that we talked about a few things like taking maybe a little bit of time after you have a patient that dies or maybe getting together before you start the shift with a couple of your other coworkers to just or at the end of the shift. Let me think of the right word for this. (laughs) I think that there is not enough specific ways for healthcare workers to deal with this problem because a lot of the solutions that people talk about are things that medical workers can't change. So like adjusting your schedule or changing the times when you're busy, like someone working in the the ER doesn't really have control over that. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on things that they could do, even just small things to help with that or improve the situation. Well, I'll do my best because I think that that there
1: are things where if you are in a very high-intensity position where you're constantly facing crisis, hopefully there is some systemic safeguards put in place so that you're not basically running on adrenaline for 12 hours. Mm -hmm. Now, it doesn't sound like that's the case. It sounds like people are running on adrenaline for 12 hours when things are bad. (laughs) So- um so that being the case not having the safeguards not having the capacity to do much with your schedule i think it comes down to making the most out of your breaks I, is one thing and i'll tell you what that means and i think also taking sub breaks that are are super mini breaks so so I'll, let me explain that and then i'm i'm going to continue thinking while i'm talking about this about other possible okay. things so If, if you are, if you get on shift and 15 minutes after you start, you take your 15 minute break. If that's, if there's nothing, nothing you can do about that, then you make the most of that break as well as your other breaks. And so the way that you do that is one is make sure that if you're during a break, do not talk about work. It is not a break. If you're continuing to talk to your coworker about what just happened, or you're venting about something at work, or you're trying to figure out what you're going to do next. Social breaks are good. So if you're able to go with a coworker, and especially if you're go with, able to go with a coworker outside into nature and talk about something that's not work, that can be very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if you're able to just get outside or get into a place that's a little bit different than the work setting and take some time to, to breathe and, th- and, again, don't think about work in that 15 minutes um, or your 30-minute lunch or whatever that helps. It's that little bit of respite from that. Um, That also means don't go doom scrolling on social media or don't try to, like if you're studying to do something else or if you have other responsibilities, it's not like, Oh, I can quickly get some emails done because I've got a 15 minute break. Like, no, it's actually vacating work for that 15 Mm -hmm. minutes and and making the most of it. Um, And at times that could be a 15 minute nap. Um, or a 30 minute nap. Like it, it just depends on what you need. I think it's listening to what you need. Um, but it's making sure that you actually take the break and that you use it to your best capacity because too often I think people will use that break to get stuff done that they're behind on versus actually taking it as a real break. That's good. So that's one, (laughs) the other one, and this is something where it's small and it could be like if you have something on your watch or that's not going to be too intrusive or or some way to, to identify whether it's like every time you, you know, hit the hand sanitizer and you start uh, rubbing the hand sanitizer in, you take a slow, deep breath and do a grounding exercise. So it's it's just a few seconds, but every time you make sure that you take a deep breath so you're not holding your breath constantly. Um finding the moments where you can actually take a minute of just slow deep breaths, or maybe it's five or ten deep breaths that you just consciously take. and maybe it's like standing outside for 20 seconds before you walk into a patient's room, right? Mm. but it's it's consciously slowing down all of your all of your system. So when you breathe slowly, that actually slows down your heart rate. Um, if you take deep breaths, you know, I'll, I'll do it right now and you'll hear a difference. my voice is always lower after I take a deep breath. And it's just the relaxing physiologically of my body, but it also gives me a moment to be able to to ground, to not just constantly be moving forward. And so even those that are not really breaks, but it's just consciously trying to bring your adrenaline level down. And this is when you're just doing the the urgent, not emergent cases, obviously, right? Like if you Mm -hmm. were ready to, like if you're, you know, crisis case, blah, 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 and your little thing goes off and you're supposed to take a deep breath. I, I don't know that you will. Like, <laughs> you know, of course not. Like, if you're in a crisis, you're in a crisis. But if it's just the everyday thing of going from, from room to room and making sure that you're taking care of each patient's need, it could be before you walk into each room. You take a deep breath before you take, you know, and maybe it's even very mindfully taking some of the measurements because I could imagine that even just breathing slowly while you're taking a a blood pressure, like that would actually help you with getting the blood pressure and it actually would slow your heart rate down as well. So obviously I don't, I'm not a nurse, so I don't know like where the spots are, but I think it's being able to take those moments and, and use them to try to bring your adrenaline down when you don't need it. Obviously, you need it at times. But when you don't need
0: it, trying to consciously ground yourself and bring your adrenaline down. I can definitely think of times that you can do that during your shift. But it also, side note, it makes me think of all the times my Apple Watch told me to breathe. And I was like, snooze, snooze, snooze. This is not this <laughs> notification. <is known." laughs> and I actually should have done it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's hard. It's hard because like people are relying on us. They're, they're in crisis, there's a lot to consider, and we have the skills and the heart to help them. And mm-hmm. so it's it's reminding yourself that you're valuable, and you need to be in this for the long haul. And I think, especially for folks who are young and have just entered into the field, and they recognize that they got into to helping people because of you know, whether it's their own things or or something that happened to a family member and it feels life or death and everything feels so important and you have the physical body of a 20 something, you can kind of do it, Mm -hmm. but I'm in my forties and I can't do it anymore. And so I think, (laughs) and there was probably stuff I did in my body in my twenties and thirties that makes it even harder. So I think it's, it's being aware that even if you can continue to sacrifice and you can keep running, and you can keep at the pace that
0: you're at, it's not a long-term strategy. It's not sustainable. Something that I'm really taking from our conversation is the little things that you can do will really help you long-term. Even Mm -hmm. though it it doesn't seem like a lot in the moment, long-term, it will help. Yes. Yeah. So it's little things but hopefully hopefully
1: there's some advocacy that can be done for more systemic changes so that there is space to do some of these other things like really being thoughtful about schedules and not just the legally required 2 15 minute breaks and 30 minute mm-hmm. lunch like i hope that there's especially after the the roaring pandemic you know calms down and things shift back to normal my hope is that there is some some momentum towards
0: change because we need to take care of you guys. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, I think those are some great ideas for things people could just do tomorrow on their shift. And I really appreciate you mentioning them. I know that you just mentioned a more systemic approach. And I just wanted to talk about one of those possible approaches. I was just wondering in the therapy mm-hmm. psychology world, I was listening to one of your podcasts with Kerr about how burnout can happen from always seeing people at their worst and never seeing them improve and never seeing the result of your hard work because as soon as they're not at their worst anymore, you get someone else who's at their worst. So I was just wondering if in the Mm -hmm. therapy psychology world, are there any like feedback systems where you get to see the long-term effect of your work or you get to see that or... Is it kind of the same situation there? I know you probably work with patients a lot longer because <laughs> there's a high turnover rate in the ER, but I don't know, like, are there any feedback systems for like seeing progress?
1: There are. I mean, I think that for me, oftentimes, you know, when I was working, especially when I was working in public mental health and I, you know, whether it was as a frontline clinician or even a case manager at one point, um, And then all the way to when I was a director, like I feel like there would be, you know, I had a couple of clients that would come back and tell me, you know, because of you, I would did blah, 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 you know, or, or I thank you so much, Katie, or, you know, those kinds of things. But that's really pretty few and far between. I think looking at a, a systems level is not as rewarding necessarily. I think that that's certainly saying like, oh, well, there's, there's less, the suicide rate has gone down, the homicide rate has gone down, or, you know, mm-hmm. there's fewer people that are reporting depression and anxiety in our society. Like, meh, okay, you know.
0: <laughs> um, it's. I saw this thing about when the numbers are too big, you can't really apply it to yeah. yourself.
1: Yes, exactly. But I think like for myself, oftentimes when I finish with the client, it will be because they've greatly improved and I'll hold on to that. And then sometimes they'll come back and they'll have like a just a booster session. And, and that's been very rewarding too, because I've seen how they've been able to apply the things and there's just a new situation they're grappling with. And so they want some more skills or they want to process it with me or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's hard. And I would imagine in in nursing, especially because there's so many people coming through that it would be hard to know what difference you made in in the people that you're that you're working with and I think it's it becomes important to kind of look at what I call effort goals as well as kind of finding the smallest steps that you can attribute to your efforts and so or or even just being excited about the success so like knowing that you did good work and so being able to 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 quantify and and qualify how well you did in a particular setting. And so some of it's about making sure that you're, you know, continuing to learn to do your skills better, you know, and getting, you know, hopefully objective feedback on your skills, whether it's, you know, kind of how many times did I have to stick the patient before I got a blood draw, you know, or whatever it Mm -hmm. is. Right. So like things that you could actually measure yourself or, or feedback that you could get from your patients. Um, But then also looking at, you know, if somebody comes in at their worst and they start getting better, it's celebrating the little tiny wins all the way mm-hmm. through. And that could be, I got them, uh, you know, I helped to get them stabilized. I saw a smile, like I was able to connect them to a family member, you know, whatever it is. Like it's, it's trying to find those small wins and celebrating the small wins because waiting for the big wins or trying to, to focus on the big outcomes, sometimes you don't see them at all. You know, we mm-hmm. we have a saying and I'm sure this is not just therapists but that you you plant a lot of seeds, you don't
0: necessarily see them grow. Yeah. Yeah. I think that applies. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's awesome, yeah, recognizing your own individual improvements and along with like certifications or responsibility sure. or leadership. It's so
1: important and and yeah, I absolutely agree. I think if you can find ways to to do that like that sounds amazing because I think it is. It's hard to to hold on to even the, the the larger mission that you may have as a as a nurse of taking care of people if you don't really see the fruits of the, of your labor.
0: Well, I think that wraps it up for the questions I had for you today. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad we were have, having this conversation.
1: It was definitely thought provoking for me as well.
0: And it was really helpful to hear Your perspective from the therapy psychology world. So I really appreciate it. And hear it specifically to healthcare workers because I think we hear it in general a lot, but not Mm -hmm. necessarily specific to them. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Wow, guys. I felt like that episode was so informative and helpful. And there were lots of things that I can apply to my practice like immediately. I think it's really important how Katie talks about balancing the stresses of being a healthcare, the desire to give everything you have to someone else, but also the need to take care of yourself so you can take care of others. I'm so thankful that Katie was willing to come on and talk to us, and I think it was a really interesting perspective, her being a therapist. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode, and as a reminder, don't forget to follow us on social media at The Banana Bag Podcast, subscribe and download our episodes, and share with your friends. I hope it was really helpful to hear what Katie had to say. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.